Please open up your copy of God's Word. Our uh, scripture verses this morning are in two locations in the Old Testament. First location is in Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. If you're using a Bible from the back, you'll find this on page 80. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now let's skip over to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. The Bible's in the back. You'll find this on page 287. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. May the Lord open up our hearts to receive the message he's prepared through his servant, Mark. Well, good morning, and thank you for being here. If you're a guest with us, we're in the second part of a four-part series for Christmas, um, and we're focusing on the theme of God with us. Now, if you are familiar at all with the Christmas theme, uh, the Christmas idea, It's that we are celebrating the fact that God became a human being and that he became a man and that he was therefore called Emmanuel, God with us. But what we may not always appreciate is that actually this has been God's plan from the very beginning. It wasn't like when Jesus showed up and became, and and everyone said, wow, God's with us finally, that that was like a new concept. Rather, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that this has been God's plan from the very beginning. And last week, Pastor Ted took us back to the beginning, and we saw the Garden of Eden and how God dwelled with his people there. Well, I get the privilege this morning of trying to cover the whole Old Testament in one sermon. So that's the challenge in 40 minutes to try to do uh, the, the whole entire Old Testament. If you know, that's the majority of the Bible in comparison to the size of the New Testament. But I'm going to try by God's grace, and we're going to focus on this idea of how, and I want to answer this question this morning, how was God with his people in the Old Testament before the coming of Christ? And what we're going to see is that he was actually with them through a tabernacle and temple system that he had set up in Israel. Now, you I have to ask the question, why? Why did God decide to make this arrangement? Why this whole large tent that Israel had to create, and at the time they were in the wilderness, move a lot, and which eventually after the coming of David and, the, and God's promise to David and then Solomon building the temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem, and God's presence and dwelling coming down there. We read in Exodus 40 about God's presence coming into the tabernacle, and we read in 1 Kings about God's presence coming in the temple. Why, did, why this temple tabernacle system? And the, and the answer is really quite simple biblically. It's that if God is going to dwell with his people who are sinful, this is post-Eden, they've, been, they've sinned, they've been kicked out of the garden, they're no longer allowed access back into Eden. If God's going to still dwell with his people and fulfill his promise to fill the earth with his glory, 
that he has to arrange a system in which human sin can be dealt with. And that's really fundamentally what the tabernacle and temple is all about. It's about a sacrificial system at the heart of it so that God, as a holy God, can dwell with his people. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and being like, that's weird. That's strange. Well, it's not strange if you understand who God is. See, God is holy, which means he's not like us. He's different from us. He's unique. We are sinful. Ever since our fall in Adam, we are unlike God. We are polluted. We are defiled. We are corrupt. We are broken. We are lawbreakers. We are those who have no right to God's presence. And God cannot simply wipe sin away, forgive it, apart from a sacrifice, apart from another life being given for us to pay the penalty for that sin. And if we don't get that, if we don't understand that, we have no idea why Jesus came and why that whole cross thing happened. I mean, really, we we won't understand it. So the Old Testament is foundational for us to understanding why why when Jesus came, he took his 33-year-old life to a cross. And that's where the Gospels end, except for the resurrection. But if we understand why the Old Testament and why this whole bloody, sacrificial, tabernacle, temple system was in place, we can begin to appreciate and worship God in in, in what I believe is a fuller, more more, uh, robust and holistic understanding because then we'll understand, wow, what God had to do in order to forgive us was to sacrifice his only son for us. So that's what I hope will happen. I hope that your, your heart will be warmed and thrilled as you consider just how, in a, in a sense, how awful this temple and tabernacle system was. And I mean that not in a negative sense, but more just an awe-inspiring sense. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And we're going to be in several parts of Scripture to do that. Mike Cosper, in his book called The Songs of Jesus, talks about, not, not The Songs of Jesus, that's the book I'm looking at. That's the book of the month, by the way. I forget what, oh, The Stories We Tell is what it's called, sorry. Um, we'll get to The Songs of Jesus later on. Uh, the go, in a chapter called The Ghosts of Eden, he talks about what life is like post-Eden. He says, the history of our world is bookended by two visions of perfection, the glory of Eden and the hope of the new heavens and new earth. In the chaotic middle, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning, in the chaotic middle where we now live, we're haunted by these visions. When suffering strikes, be it from a terrorist, disease, or the battles that rage within us, a powerful sense simmers within, telling us that this isn't the way the world was meant to be. Don't you watch the news and think that and feel that? This isn't the way things are supposed to be. We want suffering to end, And we also know that it should never have been here in the first place. The paradise of Eden was how the world was meant to be, Cosper says. It wasn't merely a garden. It was holy ground, a sacred place where men and women were to live in harmony with God and creation. There, the whole experience of life was meant to be explored. Work, food, sex, relationships, and rest without any stain of sin or suffering. This was the life we were meant to live. And this is what we long for today. These stories are like echoes and memories of Eden, where an intruder destroyed something pure and unspoiled. We're left lamenting a loss we don't fully understand. It's hard to articulate something we feel in our bones and know most clearly when suffering strikes. We're like second-generation exiles who never knew the world they lost, but long for it nonetheless. I think that paints a, a picture of what life is like in this chaotic middle 
between the perfection of Eden and the perfection of heaven. We feel this tension of the world is not what it is and it's not what it should be. The world that is is not what it should be. And we saw last week about that beautiful Eden temple that where God dwelled with his people. But all that changes once sin enters the world and Adam and Eve disobey God. In Genesis 4, right after the fall, there's murder between the two children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And then there's progressive corruption in chapters 6 through 8, eventually culminating in a worldwide flood where God destroys all of humanity because the sin in that, in, in that short period of time had so spread over a period of generations that God felt like he just needed to wipe the whole slate clean. I mean, that's how fast sin spread. And it didn't stop spreading just because Noah was saved. Rather, we see in the immediate, right in Genesis chapter 9, as soon as the, he gets off the boat and new creation starts, he's drunk in a tent. And this is obviously not God's man. But nevertheless, God's promise continues. And we catch up to the story in Genesis chapter 12. And God calls a man named Abram. And through Abram, he makes this covenant promise that he is going to do what he planned to do with Adam. He hasn't forgotten that plan. That he's going to multiply him and spread, him, spread his influence throughout and, and, and the generations throughout the, uh, his, through, his, through him are all the nations of the earth going to be blessed and those who bless him he's going to bless God's going to bless and those who curse him God's going to curse it's this whole idea you're my man Abram you're the one that I'm going to pick up where I left off with Noah and Adam and I'm going to carry this plan forward and so God continues his purpose begun through Adam to expand his dwelling place to fill the earth and there's a progression that we see in the Old Testament of God with us. There's a progression in which God is coming to dwell with his people. And I want us to see three of those this morning. I want us to see the progression through the Old Testament of how God begins to fulfill this promise and dwell with his people. And so first of all, we're going to see these little small sanctuaries that God meets with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we're going to fast forward to the tabernacle system after they come out of Egypt And then we're going to fast forward to the third phase, which is the temple in Jerusalem after Solomon and builds it. So let's start with these sanctuaries. I want you to go with me and we're going to, we're going to kind of take a look at a few scriptures this morning. So we're going to be in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. So if you're not super familiar with the Bible, that's all right. Just open it up to the very beginning. Or if you got it on a Bible app, you can pull it up there too. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 12 and we're going to read the first three verses. And this is God's call of Abram. And he says, now the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's commission to Adam gets passed down to Abraham right here. Now notice what Abraham does when that commission comes. Notice Genesis chapter 12, verses seven and eight. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So he builds this altar 
for God's presence, for God's dwell. And it's a small thing. But he's beginning to recognize he's heard from God and he wants God to dwell. That's Bethel means house of God. And he's literally desiring, okay, God, you're going to dwell with us now. You're going to be with us. And so he builds an altar inviting the presence of God. We not only see this in the life of Abram, but we also see it in the life of his son, Isaac. Go to Genesis 26. Fast forward in the story a little bit. And here's God's promise from Abraham gets passed down to his son, Isaac, in Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4. He says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments and my statutes and my laws. So here the the covenant blessing gets passed down. Now, what does Isaac do? Same thing his father did. uh, Genesis 26 verses 24 and 25. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. This small sanctuary and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Again, this promise comes, this promise of God's blessing and presence and provision and the, 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 the promise to Adam is going to go forward. And what does he do? He builds a small tent, welcoming and inviting the presence of God. But still, this is small. This is God doing little pieces, building, building up the story here. Genesis chapter 35. Let's go to Jacob, the son of Isaac. Genesis 35 and verses 11 and 12. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, don't feel bad about this. Those big numbers are the chapters, so like 35 is the chapter. And all the ones in between 35 and 36, they got these little verse markers. So that's where we are. Genesis 35 and verses 11 and 12. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. See that? Be fruitful and multiply. It's very much synonymous with what the promise God gave to Adam and to Abraham and Isaac. Verse 12, the land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then what do he do? Verse 13 and 14, then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, house of God. See, when God manifests himself to these people to carry on his plan that he originally started in Eden with Adam, what's the impulse? The impulse is to build a tent, to build an altar, to build a pillar. To, and it literally becomes, because they've experienced the presence of God, they've heard the voice of God, they want that to remain. They want God to dwell with them. So in summary, we see here, that the patriarchs, the founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, received the commission that was originally given to Adam in direct connection with building of small sanctuaries. And just as Genesis 128, the original commission to be fruitful and multiply that God spoke to Adam, 
was initially to be carried out by Adam in the sanctuary of Eden, so this commission is passed down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and begins to be fulfilled in a small sanctuary. See, there's a pattern, isn't there? God appears to them. They pitch a tent, literally a tabernacle, on a mountain. They build altars to worship God, and they name it Bethel. All right, so this pattern only shows up in the Old Testament in describing the tabernacle and temple from here on out. So these informal sanctuaries in Genesis point forward to Israel's future tabernacle and temple. So what role do these small sanctuaries, these tents, these pillars, these altars play? Well, since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob built altars throughout the land, the terrain of Israel's future land would have been dotted with these shrines. And this pilgrim-like activity was like planting a flag, this building of a pillar, this building of an altar, this building of a small tent would have been like planting a flag and claiming the land for God. And Israel's future temple where God would set up his permanent residence in the capital of the land. So it's this small picture of what God's going to do ultimately. Now, what can we take away from something like this? I mean, this is a unique period in redemptive history. Don't go out and expect God to speak to you and then get a pile of rocks and go build them over there in the field or pitch a tent, unless you're camping out back, but pitch a tent out in the soccer field. I mean, don't go do that. It's not, that's not the point of this. It's like, I just want him to hear God. Maybe if I go camping and build some rocks and cry out long enough, he'll speak to me. No, that's not the point. He won't. But what, he, but what we are to learn from this is that we aren't to despise the day of small things, to quote Scripture, right? That God does, everything God does isn't like big. In fact, most of what he does is small. It's a whisper. I mean, no one knows about this stuff except these people. It's not like he's writing his name and God's writing some covenant in the clouds and everybody can see it. He's manifesting himself to a few people, to a family over a period of generations. And this reminds us very much in the New Testament of how Jesus builds his kingdom. Remember Matthew 13, 31 and 32? Let me read you these verses telling about a parable of how God's kingdom grows. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. I love that picture of the kingdom. It's a small seed, but it eventually grows. And Jesus says here, it's larger, it becomes larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. See, God, and those of you who are familiar with farming and agriculture in this area, you'll appreciate this metaphor. That's how God's kingdom grows. God's kingdom doesn't come in these huge blasts. Now, don't, no, no, don't, don't miss the point that you know, God's kingdom does come in significant redemptive events. I mean, you know, like... Like the Exodus is a huge redemptive historical event where God's literally shaking the country of Egypt to get his people out. And the coming of Christ, even though it's small, it's a significant, huge event. And the resurrection is a significant, huge event. But 
keep in mind that the way the Bible paints these scenarios is that it's a very quiet work that God is doing. And this should be encouragement to us as Christians, right? We got to take the long haul with our lives. We got we to gotta focus on the end game and be willing to go through a lot of day by day by day by day mundane, extraordinary faithfulness. Because that's what it's about. So in your work, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your life in the church, in your effort to build relationships, and it's, it's slow, okay? And it's good. That's the way the kingdom grows. Deliberate, long-term sowing. And so I just want you to be encouraged that to not despise the day of small things and to remember that God is often up to much more than we know. In fact, much more than Abraham and Isaac and Jacob knew. God was up to something. So that's the first little phase of post-Eden, God dwelling with his people in these small sanctuaries as he reveals himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and carries on his commission to Adam. Now we come to the book of Exodus, the next book in the Bible, and we're going to see the second this whole tabernacle system. Okay, So as the story continues, at the end of Genesis, Joseph, the son of Jacob, is sold into Egyptian slavery where he later comes to power. And as the book of Exodus begins, God's people have been multiplied through Joseph and are in captivity in Egypt. So God raises up Moses to deliver them from Egyptian bondage. And through a series of plagues, God's people are delivered and brought to Mount Sinai where God appears to Israel as he had appeared to the patriarchs. And Mount Sinai anticipates the building of the tabernacle. All right, so we're, we're after the plagues. God's brought his people out. He's brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai becomes a temporary tabernacle. It has all the signs that all these previous small sanctuaries had. Think about it. Sinai is called the mountain of God. Just as with Eden and the coming tabernacle and temple, Sinai was divided into three sections of increasing holiness, just like the tabernacle and temple system that we'll see. There was the foot of Sinai, which is where the people were allowed to be. There was the coming up the mountain a little bit where the priests and elders were allowed to come up part way. And then there was the top of the mountain where only Moses was allowed to go as the high priest of his people, of God's people. And he could only ascend and directly to the top and experience the immediate presence of God. Anyone else who tried to go up, they were incinerated and killed on the spot because God is holy. So just as an altar was built in the outermost section of the temple and tabernacle, so an altar was built at the lowest and least sacred part of Sinai where Israel offered their sacrifices. Remember where the Ten Commandments and the Ark was kept? All right? They were created at the top of Mount Sinai, just as they later found their place in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So in these ways, God appeared to Israel at Sinai, and that anticipates the building of a tabernacle. And it's through the building of that tabernacle and the later parts of Exodus that God's presence is more fully revealed. So that's where we're going to go now and talk about the building of this tabernacle. Now, as Israel leaves Sinai and God sends them off from the mountain, they are called to build a mobile tabernacle or tent, a large tent, in order that God's glorious presence might dwell in their midst 
as a sinful people during their time in the wilderness. So the building of the tabernacle is a step toward the building of the immovable temple in Jerusalem. The instructions on how to build the tabernacle and what to include in it is constitute the entire second half of the book of Exodus. I mean, have you ever tried to read the second half of the book of Exodus? It's, it's great to read. You should read it. It's God's word. But nevertheless, it's detail after detail after detail of how this tabernacle is to be built. And this is not just a small like little camping tent. This is a huge, large, multi um, you know, long sides, uh, tabernacle. And it's, it's not, it's not miles long, but it's, but it's big. And the craftsmanship involved and the cost involved. I mean, these are Egyptian slaves. Keep this in mind. They don't have, they're not like rolling in it. They've got, they don't have a lot of money, but God, the spirit gifts that people with what they need to build this great tabernacle for God's presence. And it's, it's, it's glorious. It has beautiful colors and, and engravings and woodwork and gold. And I mean, all this stationary that God put inside of it, you know, the altar and the basins and the lampstand and the bread and all this. And he's, and they're having to build all this according to God's specific instructions. Now that takes us back to Eden. Okay, because when God's going to dwell with his people, he gives them specific parameters. And that's what he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam. He said, you may eat of all these trees in the garden, but this tree you must not eat. All right? But it gets more complicated after sin. And that's meant to teach the people of Israel something. I mean, this is hard labor. They're having to build this thing, and then they build it, and then they got to move it. I mean, can you imagine? It takes a long time to, to get all the materials together, and then it takes an even longer time to set it up. And then once it's set up, the pillar of cloud starts moving, and they're going, oh, we got to pack it up. And we got to go move this thing. Who knows how long? Because God told them, when the cloud moves, you pack it up and you go. And when the cloud stops, you... But he didn't tell them how long they'd be moving, you know, so you can imagine day after day them lugging this across the wilderness, dragging it, being careful that priests touch certain parts and they weren't allowed, you know, access to certain things. They had to be very careful. And they've got all this expensive, hard work, and they're dragging it across the wilderness. And then finally, the cloud seems to stop and they put it down. And then they spend the next day, two days, three days, week, who knows how long, putting it back together. And the people of Israel stay there for a period of time. The cloud starts to move again. And they go, oh, we got to pick this thing up. So they, they, now don't, don't, don't get the picture that their, their only feeling was exasperation. It wasn't exasperation. God was dwelling in their midst. It was a glorious thing. It was a precious thing. It was a wonderful thing. But it was a costly thing. And it was a burden to bear. Not to mention the whole sacrificial system. I mean, think about that. So, so picture, let's go back in time. Okay, picture yourself here. You're with me, right? You're, you're here in the wilderness. It's not air-conditioned, AC, nice house in Owensboro. Wilderness. Okay, former slaves. You're here. Tabernacle set up. Okay, it stopped. You've got it rebuilt. Well, let's start the sacrifices. So literally, bring in the, 
the bull, the goat, the calf. The priest is right there at the front. They're slaughtering animals left and right. I mean, imagine you imagine the sounds you're hearing as you're coming up. You've got this, you're trying to control this goat for your family, and you're bringing it up. And then, I mean, just look at the priest. He is covered in blood. It smells like flesh burning. You hear animals bleeding. Well, not the sheep. The sheep would be quiet. Or the lamb would be. But you hear these animals, and you hear, and you see, you see blood, and you see the, the carving up of these animals, and the burning, and then the basin, and trying to wash this off. I mean, imagine what the priests had to go home looking like every day. I mean, just covered. And then once a year, the high priest getting to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But the sacrificial system was an ongoing, regular reality. And this is meant to communicate, look, if, this is, if, if God is going to dwell with you, even though you're God's people, even though you're his chosen people, you're, you're Israel, you're those who've descended from Abraham, we want, you know, God wants to dwell with you. But it doesn't happen without sacrifice. It does not happen. I mean, that's crystal clear in your mind as an Israelite. If God is going to dwell with this, dwell among us, a lot of animals have to die. I cannot come as a sinner into God's presence apart from a costly mediating sacrifice. That's clear. That is crystal clear from the tabernacle system. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're, not, you're not yet a Christian. You're still exploring Christianity. You're checking it out. Maybe a friend. We're thankful you're here. Hope you'll keep coming back. We're, we love you. We're excited you're here. We don't expect everybody who walks in these doors to be a Christian. In fact, we hope several of you aren't. And, and one of the things that you should learn from this is that God may, may not be like what you thought he was like. You need to be able to answer this question for yourself. Answer this question. How can a holy God dwell with you and me and us as a sinful people and still be holy? How can he do that? That's the question that the Bible answers. That is the question at the heart of the Bible. How can a holy, perfect, righteous God dwell with an unholy, impure, unrighteous people and not be guilty of violating his justice? You know, if we had a judge in Davis County that was like that, that let criminals go, they would show up. So what have you done? Child molestation? Let it go. You know, we'll let bygones be bygones. I'm a forgiving judge. Everything within you would run down to that courthouse, and if you didn't have a gun, you know, you, you, you sense that, right? You sense the wrongness of that. But why don't we sense the wrongness of that when we think of God? Why do we think, well, God just, he just forgives. He just lets it go. He, it's not a big deal for him. Sin is not a problem. But when we are thinking rightly, about the concept of justice and holiness and righteousness, it means that 
you cannot treat sin that way if you're going to pass it over and still be called holy, righteous, and just. Proverbs says that the one who condemns the righteous or acquits the guilty is an abomination to God. So if God does, if God sets up a system in which he can forgive sin apart from sacrificial death, then he becomes an abomination in his own eyes. He violates his own character, which it's impossible for God to do. So God has to create a system in which he can deal with human sin effectively. Now, it should be crystal clear from this, as you read the Old Testament, that this is not an effective way to deal with human sin. Kill, I mean, they had, to, they had to see the incongruity of this whole situation. They're coming up to the tabernacle, and they're offering these sacrifices, and they're thinking, wait, animals for people? Okay, I don't get this. How does this work? I mean, the righteous in Israel had to think that. They're like, okay, so animals are having to die, but it's the people who are sinning. I don't, I don't know if I completely understand this. But I trust God. I trust his ways. I know that he has said that this is the way in which sin is atoned for. So I believe that. But they had to know deep down in their hearts, and this is holy imagination, biblical speculation, whatever. They had to know deep down in their hearts that this wasn't the final word from God about this. That this whole tabernacle tent system wasn't, what it was, wasn't the final picture here. And it's not the final picture. And Pastor Jonathan's going to come next week and take us further in the biblical story and show us that the altar there, that where animals were sacrificed, is no longer necessary because Christ has come. And Hebrews 9 tells us that he is the once-for-all sacrifice on behalf of sinful men. And the basin of washing that provided a place for priests to wash after their messy process of animal sacrifice, that's no longer necessary. Why? Because in Christ, that's fulfilled. We see in Revelation chapter 7, where Pastor Keith will take us in two weeks as we see the final part of God's story, that the people there are adorned in white robes. And how did their robes get made white? Through the blood of Jesus. Revelation 7.14. So we'll postpone that. We'll look forward to that the next couple of weeks. Let's stay here in the Old Testament for now and look one final point, the temple. All right, so we've seen the small sanctuaries with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've seen the tabernacle system and how it was set up to deal with sin. (coughs) And now we come to the larger temple that was built in Jerusalem. So soon after, let's pick up the story. Soon after the Israelites enter Canaan, after wandering around in the prom- wandering around in the wilderness, the, t- a tabernacle, the set tabernacle gets set up at Shiloh, and eventually, due to the increasing waywardness of the people, God abandons the, 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 the tabernacle. This is reflected especially in Judges and the early part of 1 Samuel, and is immediately prompted by the corrupt behavior of the Shiloh priests. See, what has happened is that this tabernacle system has not provided a change to people's natures and hearts. It has not made them more righteous. The priests are corrupt. 
those who are dealing with the sacrifices, who are supposed to be God's men for this assignment, supposed to be holy and set apart and separate, they're not. They're corrupt. The wife of Phineas underscores the tragic significance of this event when in 1 Samuel 4.23, when she names her soon-to-be orphan son Ichabod, the glory of God has departed from Israel. And that's a sobering season in Israel's history. I mean, you want, to be, you want to read some deep, dark stuff. The book of Judges in the first part of Samuel is pretty dark. Because it's there where the corruption of the people becomes more and more evident. And that this tabernacle system is not going to solve it. So eventually, with David's appointment as king, that's the next sort of high point in the biblical story. And the capture of Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant is brought back to the city. And David's desire to construct the temple is prompted by the incongruity that he sees between the house that he's living in and the house that God's living in. And as a righteous king, he looks and says, how can I live in this palace and God dwells in a tent? This is wrong. This can't be. I mean, and that's, that's humility. That's a sense in which he, he recognizes the greatness and the glory of God, and he's a humble king, and he sees, he's not a perfect king by, by any means, but he's humble, and he's, got a, he's a man after God's own heart, and he sees what's going on, and he says, we got to build God a better house than that. Especially now that the ark's back, and his presence is coming back to us. And while this is rightly motivated, God intervenes and prohibits the construction of the temple from David. He tells him, no, 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 you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And he carries on that promise from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And now he passes it to David. And he said, I'm going to build you a kingdom. I'm, through you, I'm going to continue this plan. But he does, tell, he does tell David that David's son, Solomon, will build a house for God. And in due course, Solomon comes to power, David's son, and succeeds to the throne and builds a magnificent temple in Jerusalem. And the the Jerusalem temple has now superseded the tabernacle as the place of God's presence with his old covenant people. As the dwelling place of God on earth, Jerusalem, as the temple city, becomes in miniature what God intends to do with the whole world. And I want you to know that this temple, this temple thrilled the godly in Israel. It thrilled the godly in Israel. The book of Psalms contains many Psalms that reflect on the glory of God in the temple, in Jerusalem, in Zion, the place where God dwells. And I want us to turn to a few of them and just see how this gripped the godly hearts of the godly in Israel. These are true believers in the true God, and they are ecstatic that God's presence has come back in the temple. Isaiah four, or sorry, Psalm 48. Psalm, we're going to read a, a three passages in the Psalms before we wrap up here. Psalm 48 and verses 1 through 3. This would have been a psalm, a song, literally, that the sons of Korah, the leaders, the worship band, <laughs> the worship team, the music team, would have led God's people in singing. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, Jerusalem. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Verses 12 through 14. Walk about Zion, 
Jerusalem. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. I mean, they love this. This is God's presence. This is God's temple. This is where he dwells with us. This is the city of our God. And it thrilled them. And they worshiped God. The song we sang this morning, Better is One Day, was inspired by Psalm 84. Turn with me there. Psalm 84. Again, a psalm of the sons of Korah that would have been sung. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself when she, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. They thrilled them. Their hearts were gripped. In fact, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are psalms of pilgrimage. They would have been songs in which the godly in Israel on their way to Jerusalem would have sung to God as they moved toward the city of God where, he, where his dwelling place was, where he was, and they sang with great joy and they awaited that when they would arrive at the gates of Jerusalem to be allowed to walk in and see the temple and praise and worship God. These people rejoiced at the temple that they had to go miles and miles on pilgrimage to get to. And we struggle to get out of bed to come to church. Think about that. I mean, their hearts were gripped with the place where God dwells. And where's the place God dwells now? His church He dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, we got some heart work to do. We got some heart work to do. I know it's hard. I know it's a struggle. But is it harder than the tabernacle was? Lugging this huge thing around? Waiting on a pillar to move? I got to get up, get a shower, get dressed, and get in the car and drive. The, the, Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God Almighty. My soul longs, even faints for the courts of the Lord. I mean, that's, it's not talking, they're not talking about heaven. They're talking about a temple, a physical temple in Jerusalem that they're fainting over. And we, in our period in redemptive history, have far greater privileges, far greater blessings than any of them ever had. We have got the crucified, resurrected, reigning Son of God over our church, in us, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. 
We have a future inheritance. We have a church right now that God dwells in and is using and is moving in. And we get to be a part of the work and kingdom of God. And we don't have to make a pilgrimage. We don't have to pack up a tabernacle. We get to lay our lives down for Jesus. I mean, is it clear that God's people in the Old Testament, central to that, to their heart and their passion and their joy, was the dwelling place of God? Then that means central to us, the things that must everything else must revolve around is the church of God. What do you sacrifice for the church of God? What do you give up? What do you give up? Or does everything get pushed out of the side to be with God's people? No, I'm not going to. I mean, our kids have sports. We've got family obligations. Well, I do too. And I don't do it just because I'm a pastor. I do it because I want God. May God grip your heart, church. And may he install himself as central to you so that everything revolves around him and his people and his glory and his grace and his presence and his power. I don't say that to shame you. I say that because God's presence and God's privileges and God's power is with his church assembled. Assembled. Whether it's assembly here on a Sunday morning or it's in smaller groups in homes or it's in prayer meetings or impromptu gatherings, that's where God's presence is. Not just in us individually. So that's where I want us to end. I want us to end on this great idea of not just, oh God, help help me. Yes, we all need help. We all need help to love God to love his people, to love his church. It's hard. It's, I know it's work. I don't even want to come to church sometimes. I know it. Okay. It's not. And, and God knows that he knows we're dust. He knows we struggle, but we need to go to the Psalms, pick up a book like this. I'm not trying to shill for Tim Keller, but this is a, this is our book of the month for December. Okay. And this is what I'm going, this is a year of meditation in the Psalms. Tim Keller spent 20 years as a pastor in New York, probably my favorite author, spent 20 years meditating through the Psalms, and he's opened up his journals and said, I'm going to put them in a book form. And it's meant to stir our affections for Christ. And so pick it up. Start January 1 and start praying through the Psalms. I think it'll do your soul great good. I know it would do mine. And I'm planning to do it. I would love for you to join me. So let's, let's bathe our hearts in this, and let's say, God... It's not a reality for me right now. And God's going to say, I know. I love you. I love you. Say, God, there's so many other things that I make excuses for. There's so many other things. And, and I, need, I need you. I need your presence. I need to be where the place where your glory dwells. I need to be with your people. And you just repent and you acknowledge that. And God forgives you of your sin and he wipes it all away and he renews you and he blesses you because nothing that you are or what you do is going to change the fact that Christ has died for you. He's lived for you. 
Christ obeyed all these psalms on your behalf. He's the one who said, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, because I, Mark Redfern doesn't. My soul longs because his doesn't. Yes, faints for the courts of the Lord because his doesn't. My heart better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere because that guy's heart doesn't. And he fulfilled Psalm 84 for us so that by grace and through the presence of the Holy Spirit that we could be progressively changed into longing for those things. So that's where we close today. Eventually, the temple gets rebuilt. It gets destroyed and then rebuilt after the exile. And although the completed structure was unable to match the splendor of the original temple, it was a powerful signal that God was still concerned with fulfilling his creation blueprint. While the post-exilic reconstruction and rebuilding of the city walls are evidence that God is still determined to complete his creation project, there will be further measures that need to be enacted in order for this to be achieved. And that's where the Old Testament ends. So worship team, music team, if I can invite you forward, we're going to pray in just a moment. And I want, you to, I want you to think about a few questions, church, this morning as we close. I want you to ask yourself. I want you to, there's a mingling of emotions I think God would have us have. First, it's thankfulness. That should dominate us. Thankfulness that we don't have to live in a temple and tabernacle system anymore. That that's no longer the reality for God's people. That you don't have to worry about calendaring in 2016 a trip to Jerusalem. That'd be quite expensive for your family. And you don't have to worry about hauling a tabernacle. We don't have to get everybody here together for a tabernacle committee meeting to figure out who's hauling what parts and which, one, which deacon is going to be set over which part to haul this thing out of here until the pillar of cloud stops. We don't have to do that. Why? Because we have a perfect high priest who has once for all put away our sins by the sacrifice of himself. That's why. And you can rejoice in that. And you should be thankful that God has you in the period of redemptive history that he has you. So that should be thankfulness. You should also feel a sense of contrition that your heart and my heart is not even what Old Testament saints' hearts were. And there should be a sense of, if they had that much joy, that much passion, that much desire for a tabernacle and a temple system, and we've got the reality now, We've got Jesus and the church. Then there should be a level of contrition there saying, God, I need, I need heart surgery. I need Holy Spirit heart surgery. Please help me. And he will help you. And then you should return back to renewed obedience based on grace. God, by your grace, I'm going to devote myself to the things that will stir my affections for Christ which is your word, which is prayer, which is worship, which is being with God's people. And I'm going to pray that you'll make my heart like your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together and for this opportunity to respond in song to you. This is the appropriate way to end this time together by singing to you in response to who you are and what you have done with, for us. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, and thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing a verse.